happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's kind of kind of strug out, honestly. Uh, my Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards, the podcast where I talk about bad people. But this morning I woke up like seven minutes before we started recording, and so I'm I'm pounding coffee into my face. It's one um, and it's one twenty one p.m. Just for the record. Yeah, it's it's the morning, Sophie. It's the I know, early this morning. This is like this is like yeah. nine a.m. for you. Yeah, this is like 7 a.m. for me. Um, I don't I, think anyone's ever awoke this early, except for my guest today, Dr. Kamehuda! Yeah, you just nailed that intro, by the way. It. Thank that you. is professional Thank you. broadcasting at its finest. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I was we just did the Rush Limbaugh episode, so I've been I've been thinking of a true professional and trying to trying to really nail it down. Which is why I got drunk last night and slept Robert, in until twelve fifty five. I did not <laughs> like I did not like that reference. <laughs> to Rush Limbaugh? El Rushbo? Yeah. Cave, <laughs> uh, you are a podcaster, uh one of the hosts of the House of Pod podcast. Correct. Um you are our my my go to source for medical advice. <laughs> Mine <laughs> poor, too. Poor bastard. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we, we got to hang out one of the last times, uh, that I got to hang out with anybody outside of, um, my riot friends in Portland, uh, right before the plague went down. That would have been what, what, when, we, when I was on your podcast, that would have been like January of 2020. It's worth noting because you came and I looked this up because somebody posted this and they yeah. posted the transcript. I don't know how they did that, but they posted the transcript of the episode, which we don't do, but someone else did. And they posted it because it was like January 3rd, and I asked you, I said, listen, how is the world going to end? And you said, here's what's going to happen. Some kid's going to go off to China for like vacation. He's going to come back to his job 
at like Starbucks and he's not going to have enough insurance to cover his days off. He's going to have some sort of illness and he's going to spread it to everyone at his job and it's going to spread throughout the country and it's going to be awful. And we were all like, all right, dude, <laughs> so I was a little paranoid. And then it happened like a couple months later. I remember very distinctively and it was, I think you were one of our last in studio guests too. So yeah. it was like early January. Don't you know the rule? Don't ever ask this fool to predict anything. He's a goddamn nightmare. Yeah. It's creepy. It's, it's accurate. I felt bad it's about that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully we do seem to be, Fingers crossed, knock on wood, um, nearer to the end than the beginning of this particular biblical plague. Yeah. Um, hopefully. Uh, so I thought we'd we'd talk about a subject that has absolutely nothing to do with medicine or plagues. Woo. Um, Sweet. Yeah. But does have a lot to do with Malaysia. In fact, we're talking about the family that stole Malaysia today. Um, have you ever heard of the Brook Dynasty? No. Are they like the, the diamond people? No. Um, I think they used to. I think they also owned a company that made cookies. But no, they are a family who is the only family in the history of imperialism that I'm aware of uh, to steal an entire country for their own personal property. Not as like part of a country, not as not steal it for the British Empire for themselves, <laughs> for the Brooks. <laughs> yeah, for the Brooks. Yes, this one's for the Brooks. <laughs> yeah, a large chunk of Malaysia was their personal property for quite for like a century. They gave it up in the late 1940s. <laughs> oh my God! No, yeah. I have not heard. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, this is a fun one. We're mostly going to be talking about James Brooke, who is the guy who actually stole Malaysia. Um, but we'll chat a little bit about the rest of his family at the end here. So without further ado, let's talk about the Brooks. So once upon a time on the island of Borneo, there existed a powerful kingdom called Brunei. Now, there's still a Brunei in Borneo, and it's got a sultan, and he's super rich. Everybody's heard of this. Brunei used to be for a while was a protectorate of uh, of the British crown and stuff, and how that happened is kind of in this story as well. Modern Brunei, though, is really tiny. It's like a microstate, like right. It's it's smaller than some people's neighborhoods. Back three or four hundred years ago, though, Brunei controlled a large chunk of the island of Borneo. It was a, a sizable country, and it was a big part of like kind of modern Indonesia, Malaysia. Um, it was a, a powerful force within that area. The reason why it's a microstate today lays with the actions of a single British family called the Brooks. <laughs> They're why it went from a, like a whole ass country to a tiny little microstate. So today, Borneo is split between several Malaysian states. It's part of Indonesia and the Kingdom of Brunei. So the island of Borneo, part of its Indonesia, part of its Malaysia, part of its the Kingdom of Brunei. It's a very complicated place geographically. There's a lot going on with map lines there. Um, but back in the early 1800s, it was pretty much just Brunei with a little bit of Dutch. Um, the Dutch controlled a chunk of it for God knows what reason, mainly for trading spices and shit. Uh, the S Sultan of Sulu, who was a vassal of the Spanish owned Philippines, also owned a little bit of the east part, eastern part of Brunei or eastern part of Borneo. But mostly Borneo was controlled by Brunei. Now, that changed in 1839 with the arrival of a very dumb young adventurer named James Brooke. He was born on April 29th, 1803, uh, as the son of Judge Thomas Brooke and Anna Maria Stewart. Now, as you might guess from the judge part, James was born into enormous wealth and privilege. Uh, yeah. His father was an yeah an English judge. We're talking like yeah. judges back when that means something. Not like not like now with our fucking bullshit. Sorry, I might be going to court soon. I probably shouldn't shit talk the we concept love judges. of judges judges are great judges are so kind yeah. judges, judges are, are so awesome. good 
They're so rad. Everybody loves a good judge, but the wigs. Oh, oh man. Uh, incredible look. Powder <laughs> and mallets. Yeah. Who doesn't like a mallet? This God is this, these are judges from the powder and mallets era, and he's a judge in um in India. So he's got to wear like James's dad Thomas has to wear like that whole judge get up and like sweltering ninety five degree Indian summer. I do like the mallet situation though. Like I feel like I could I could do things. The the past must have smelt so bad. You yes. know, just all the stuff they wore, lack of showers and bathing. Yeah, just coating like themselves with powder on top of like yeah. the stench and BO just to try and mask it. Just dousing themselves with tobacco smoke to try to dull it for everyone <laughs> and burn their noses out. Yeah. So J- Thomas Brooke, James Brooke is born uh, 1803 uh, to a judge named Thomas Brooke who lives in India. Um, and he ruled upon the high court of Benares interpreting the laws of the East India trading company, which ruled India at this time. So he's not a judge for like the government, he, I mean, he is, but the government is a corporation. Like he is a corporate judge. It's very cyberpunk, even though it's happening in 1803. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to like put in reference to something I can understand. So, yeah, because yeah. I have, uh, you know, for the most part, a pretty awful American education. So mm-hmm. you have to like put it in reference to a game or some yeah. sort of Disney movie that, yeah. that covered this. That helps It's me. like. It's like Blade Runner, but everyone's dying of cholera all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So James had a few siblings. Uh, He had an older brother who joined the army. And again, the army is the corporate army and died immediately, uh, leaving James to be the sole inheritor of the family fortune. He also had four sisters, two of whom died young, uh, not in India, but in the filth strewn Petri dish that was 19th century Britain. Now, somewhat unusually for a boy boy born into his social class, James spent the first 12 years of his life in India. He fell in love with the country, its culture, and the feeling of adventure that seemed ever-present on the outskirts of empire. But he also grew up very aware of the many failures of the East India Company. The first great Bengal famine, which may have killed as many as 30 million people, occurred in the early 1770s, about a generation before James's birth. Benares is on the outskirts of Bengal, and the shockwaves of so much death and social collapse would have been evident even in his youth. You know, 20, 30 years after 30 million people die, you're going to see some of the, like, the shockwaves of that. It's not, it hasn't passed entirely. Yeah. Um, Now, we've covered that on a previous episode of Behind the Bastards, but the short of it is, once the East India Company stole Bengal, they uprooted millennia of agricultural traditions to maximize profits and wound up starving the whole country to death. So unlike many imperialists of his era, James did not grow up with a rosy idea of the British Empire. His biographer Nigel Barley notes, quote, India became, to the whole Brook dynasty, an enduring and terrible example of how not to run a country. So if you've ever been to India, Benares is in, includes is a region that includes a modern day city called Varanasi, which is where James would have spent a lot of time. Varanasi is one of the oldest continually inhabited cities on the planet, and it's the city that it, it hosts what's called the Burning Ghat, which is where you can stand along the banks of the Ganges every night and watch people burn the bodies of their loved ones. Um, it's a place you can actually like I've, I've been there. It's it's a a. a a pretty powerful place to see. It's one of the most intense places I've ever been. And it would have been, it, it was that intense when, when James was there. And he grew up as a big kind of like childhood event of his watching these, these burnings on the, the banks of the Banji, the, the Ganges in Varanasi. Um, and this has an impact on him. Um, so, yeah, now, obviously the European dwellings in Benares were deliberately built up river from where the actual, like, 
native Indian people lived. Uh, but it would have been hard to miss this entirely. And in general, uh, James Brooke got to explore a lot in his youth in India because Thomas Brooke was bad at imposing boundaries on his son. He was not a particularly bright man. He's described by uh, biographers as not really clever, but a good talker, which in 19th century English terms means he had a dull mind, but he went to a good school. So he was a dumb guy who had a good education. Right? The, the dad. Yeah, the dad. The dad. dad. Okay. Yeah. And this is like you'll hear the, these people described this way a lot in British imperial history. These are the kind of men who build the British Empire. They are dumb men who are well educated, right? Which is a very dangerous combination. Right. Those are the kind of guys that will do genocides for Fail for up. profits. Yeah. So Thomas was a doting father, which is probably part of why he allowed James to stay in India so late. Normally, a kid like James, born to the upper crust, would have left India at age six to go attend school in in England. Um, it was that was it was uncommon for them to stay in India too long, in part because India was see, seen as being very dangerous, but in part because if you're an upper crust kid, you want to get into that British education system as, as right. quickly as possible. Um, now, so again, the fact that he waited until he was 12 was kind of odd um, and probably good for James. When one considers all of the inhuman crimes of the British Empire, it's worth noting that said crimes were carried out by men who'd been separated from their parents at age six and shoved into a boarding school when they were kin of kindergarten age. Right. <laughs> like, well, the thing I'm, the, the, I'm sure I'm going to hear more about this, but the, the sense I'm getting is that even though he's seeing all this bad stuff and he has the opportunity to be like, this shouldn't happen or he, he sees the drawbacks at least of in, this colonialism he's not going to learn the right lessons from it that's a sense i'm going to yes. get just because i know <laughs> the show <laughs> yeah. and it bums me out already he is not going to learn the right lessons of it um but he's also going to grow up to be very different from a lot of the other imperialists of his era because he has a different background right the the whole british education system is geared towards producing the kind of men who can who can further the empire and he doesn't really get trapped in that in the same way that other people do um because his parents keep him out of it for a much longer time um so when he's 12 he finally uh uh gets sent over to england to go to boarding school um and the fact that he goes so much later than his peers makes it a lot harder for him all the other boys of his age group had had five or six more years of formal schooling than him by the time he arrives at boarding school uh, he also had to adapt from the freedom of unsupervised life in india to being the prisoner of a boarding school one of his biographers uh john sinjin writes quote the want of regular training was of infinite disadvantage to young Brooke, who thus started life with little knowledge and with no idea of self-control. So he's kind of a wild kid uh, by the standards of, you know, British society at this mm -hmm. point. Um, his education at King Edward VI Grammar School in Norwich was something of a disaster. He hated arithmetic and grammar, and he much preferred doodling in his notebooks. His early biographers, who were all propagandists of the British Empire, guys like Robert Payne, will write, quote, It was remembered that he never told a lie and demonstrated at an early age a character of the utmost nobility. Uh, they'll say that he was seen by the other boys as a natural leader. And these are all lies. There's no evidence <laughs> of any of this. Like, right? This, <laughs> yeah. Um. And he was a very good liar later in life. So th this 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 is just kind of like traditional biographer lying nonsense. Right. Uh, the reality seems to be that he was somewhat ostracized. His one good friend was another boy named George Western. Uh, and one year, instead of going off to holiday, George announced that he was heading to sea and joined the Navy as a cabin boy. 
Uh, he probably died horribly, but James thought that the whole idea sounded terribly romantic, and he couldn't stand to stay at school without his only friend. So when George leaves, he borrows money from a schoolmate and left with a very public announcement that he too was going to see. Uh, now, the reality is that he actually took the money he'd taken from a classmate and headed to hide in his grandmother's yard. Uh, he camped in her garden <laughs> until her servants caught him. <laughs> actually, I'm starting to like him now. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's parts of this kid that are fun, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so he uh, he camps in his grandma's yard until her servants find him, and she sends him back to his school headmaster. Um, but the headmaster refuses to admit him because he'd proven himself to be, quote, a rebel. Uh, this could have <laughs> caused great scandal, but not long after, his parents returned from India, so his father could retire. And being, again, very indulgent parents, they just hired a private tutor for their son. They described him as a wayward pupil. We might say he had severe ADHD uh, because he went on to, quote, torment and terrify this poor teacher, uh, which sounds like some cousins I've had. <laughs> this this kid is this is just so interesting, like, you know, to imagine what these kinds of kids would be like now. Like, I think one thing that probably has not changed is if you come from money, no matter how bad a student you are, no matter how many social failings you have you're still going to be okay and end up running a small country yeah you're going to like even if you're a bad student even if you 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 can't abide by the rules you're going to wind up conquering yeah. a, a large chunk of malaysia i feel like this could be like george w bush's story yeah like if this we put this like into a different time yeah i will say one of the differences between him is um I, he strikes me as one of those, like, you know, every now and then you have those, like, rich kids who drop out of fancy college and just, like, join the military or something because yeah, they just yeah. got so much fucking energy. He's kind yeah. of that he's that sort of kid. He really has this, the like, he, he's bad at school. He doesn't really learn any of the things he's supposed to learn. But he's he's devouring all of these, like, cheap kind of pulp fiction novels that are coming out about fighting pirates and fighting bandits in India and like, you know, these stories that are written to propagandize the men who are building the British Empire. Like he falls in love with that shit. Right. The whole um, Alan so, Quartermain sort of yes, shit, right? Yes. Yeah. That's who he wants to be is Alan Quartermain. I don't know if that fiction comes in at this point in time. I don't know if it had been written, but like precursors to that were out at least. And right. he he grows up desperately wanting to have a life of adventure in the near in the Far East, you know, yeah. like that's the you know, he wants to meet uh, uh, what they would call like strange and foreign cultures and, and find gemstones and romance princesses and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and because he comes from wealth and privilege, he's going to get a chance to try to do all of that, um, right. which is maybe why fiction should be illegal. So. <laughs> That's adulthood, lesson. yeah, adulthood came early to Englishmen in those days. At age sixteen, he was old enough to join the military, which is it's actually not all that different now. <laughs> like I have friends who joined at seventeen, so it hasn't changed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so being hungry for glory and generally unable to focus, uh, that's the path that he chose. He rose through the ranks quickly, not on merit, but due to the fact that rich families in those days could purchase ranks for their sons. <laughs> By age 18, he was a lieutenant, a job even his most fawning biographers admit he was, quote, wholly unfitted for. <laughs> uh, he was stationed in India, where Robert Payne writes, quote, James was, in fact, a bad soldier, with a happy-go-lucky attitude towards the army. His main task was drilling the native troops, and he liked to tell the story of how he was once drilling them and marching them across the parade ground, when it occurred to him to tell them to march over a neighboring hill. He never saw them again. He collected scandalous <laughs> stories... <laughs> 
like they like they just left they, they're like yeah they just left here. they were like you know okay. what <laughs> this i don't think worst. this british empire thing's gonna go anywhere good <laughs> that's an this awesome may not story. be the empire for me i hope that's true <laughs> He collected scandalous stories. This is not this will not be the first time that his troops run away from him. <laughs> he collected scandalous stories about the officers and their wives and liked retelling them. The army amused him but made few demands on him. There were occasional big game hunts. There was always some pig sticking somewhere, but it was altogether more pleasant to bait the senior officers. He knew obscurely that something was wrong. He was bored by the society of white men, thirsting for action and devilment. He was in a strange mood, caring and not decided, and caring and not caring, decided and not decided. No woman seemed to have interested him in India, and he spent a good deal of time composing poems, no better and no worse than hundreds of poems written by his contemporaries. <laughs> We'll read one of his poems later. Yay! It's weirdly erotic. <laughs> so, also, yay! It's my favorite type of erotic. <laughs> yeah. He wrote constantly to his parents while he was stationed in India, and his focus was rather predictably self-centered for a man of his age. Mostly, he spread gossip about different wars and conflicts breaking out across the empire and his hope that he might get to participate in them. He crowed over his promotions, and he repeatedly begged his father for money. For a long span of time, he repeatedly requested that his father buy him an elephant, as he, quote, simply cannot manage without one. <laughs> I want a Tesla, Dad. Yeah, like elephants are the Tesla. Teslas of the day. Right. <laughs> and considerably better for the environment. Right. <laughs> if Elon Musk was just trying to get everybody to ride elephants, I would I'd have less of an issue. Yeah, that would be rad as hell, actually. Yeah. Everybody with a howda, like fucking shooting bows at each other from the top of an elephant. I imagine bow hunting comes back into bo- Vogue, too. Oh, so rad. probably still guns. Yeah. I mean, that would also be pretty rad. I would love to get into a gunfight from the top of an elephant. Anyway. Sophie, look at Sophie's face. <laughs> what? You know you want to get into an elephant-based gunfight, Sophie. Come on. I don't. Grand Theft Auto, but everyone's got a fucking elephant? That's I, actually... I someone's going to make that game. Someone's got to make that game. Yeah. There'll be crossfire, and then the elephants will get hurt, and then I'll, oh, I'll, yeah, that's a good, I'll be sad. Now I, now I feel bad. Now you made me feel bad for laughing at the elephant gun thing. Plus, I, yeah. whenever I think of elephant fights, I think of that really scary, those evil elephants from Lord of the Rings. Oh, the oilophants? Yeah. They're not evil. They're just being used by evil men, Yeah, th- No, but they're so scary. And they get hurt. Oh. And it hurt my heart. Do you know what wow. doesn't hurt my heart, though, Robert? The products and services that support this podcast? You know it. I hope one of them is an elephant manufacturer. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. 
Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Ah, we're back. Um, And I just want to thank Elephants International for sponsoring this podcast. (laughs) Elephants International. When you want an elephant, they're basically your only choice. The only only (laughs) elephant brand I know is a skincare brand, racist skincare brand, Drunk Elephant. Don't buy that. Oh, Jesus. That seems pretty racist. Mm, Yeah, it's a bad start. The name. I will say from the few months I spent living in India, I you did I did run into in a couple of cities, once in Delhi and a few times in Jaipur and in one or two other places, people riding elephants in traffic with like 18 wheelers next to them and stuff. And it's always (laughs) seeing seeing like a crowded city street full of traffic and just a dude sitting on an elephant is just the the most powerful flex I've seen in my entire life. Just just the look of those men just riding their elephant through town. Just like, okay, you know what? That's unbelievably powerful energy <laughs> if they have like a boom box with them while they're doing it i'm all for it i think that would be I, all, amazing that would be rad as hell <laughs> so at this point in his life newly on the cusp of adulthood brooke dreamed of making a quick fortune in the foreign service there was always opportunity for graft and bribery in the service of the east india company and then after he made his money he planned to make a glorious return to the comfortable life of an english gentleman he wrote home quote my prospects are now so good that a few years hence I hope to return to England with, with a fortune which will render unnecessary my revisiting this country. With what joy shall I give with what joy I give up what are termed the luxuries of India for a cottage and a snug fireside. This I am determined to do. So 
he seems to have initially wanted to like, well, I don't really want to stay in India. I want to make my money, come buy a farm at home and and never leave again, you know? That's his initial goal, but this changes with his first experience of action. In late 1894, the company went to war with Burma. Now, since this was a company army, much of the fighting was done with irregular units, which had been risen up and organized for profit by a corporate like entity whose employees acted as militant subcontractors. James volunteered to raise up a unit of irregular cavalry, locals who would act as scouts for the campaign. Nigel Barley notes, quote, He had found his niche, a big fish in a small pond, operating on the margins of established order, and this was the kind of position to which he would gravitate all his life. So he finds this, like, very enticing and a lot better than, you know, traditional military service. Uh, So once he'd put together this unit, he had to show it off to his superiors. And his standard way of doing this was to, like, get all of his soldiers organized out and order them to charge. Charging was, in fact, the only drill training that he ever gave his men. Um, <laughs> just blitz. He was a every blitz, every play kind of guy. Blitz. Yeah, yeah, just blitz. Just just go rush at those guys. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> then one day, there's an actual battle, and he orders his men to charge a group of Burmese fighters, which they promptly did, but then forgot to come back, and he never saw his soldiers <laughs> again. <laughs> He's the worst. I love it. That's <laughs> <It's> the worst. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. So, in January of 1825, James saw his first close combat against the Burmese in Rungpur, Assam. After shouting out what he what he described as a few inspiring words to his comrades, he charged mm-hmm. headlong into a well-defended, elevated position, which is what most military experts would call a bad idea. <laughs> One has to say that James Brooke was at least fully willing to engage in the same foolhardy acts of bravery that he demanded of his men. And on this occasion, stupid bravery worked. The Burmese were so shocked to see a single man charging them down, raving a saber and shrieking like a hellion, that they broke and ran. James earned a commendation for bravery and was written up repeatedly for his raw physical courage. However, this kind of bravery tends to bite people in the ass. From the book White Raja, quote, A few days after, the general in command heard of a strong stockade being in front and sent out Lieutenant Brooke to reconnoiter, but he was not able to return in time to prevent the advance guard from falling into an ambuscade. As the foremost company turned a corner in the road, they were received by a volley which knocked over a number of men. In the midst of the confusion, Brooke came galloping up, putting himself at the head of the men, charged and, foremost fighting, fell. When the affair was over and the enemy driven from their stockades, Lieutenant Colonel Richards asked after Lieutenant Brooke, who he had seen fall, and he was reported dead. Take me to his body, was his reply, and they rode to the spot. Poor Brook, said the colonel, getting off his horse to have a last look at him. Kneeling over him, he took him in his hand. He's not dead, he cried, and instantly had him removed to camp. So, Brooke's active military career had asked, like, his actual time fighting had been about two days. And because of the severity of his injuries, he would spend the next five years uh, recovering. So... That's kind of the next half decade of Brooke's life is he gets shipped back home because his injuries are so severe and he spends most of it like in bed or in hospitals. The, the doctor in me just kind of wants to know, maybe they didn't say it, but what do they say what his injuries were? That brings us to one of the great mysteries over James Brooke. You're going to like this one. So most sources at the time would note somewhat surreptitiously that he had been shot in the junk. Um, this rumor is common even today. I found a Daily Beast article that included the line, a painful war injury in what Victorians delicately called his private parts probably discouraged Brooke from marrying. Because this guy, again, he conquers a large chunk of land. He never has natural descendants, right? So one of the rumors that was kind of spread, may have been spread by him, was that he had been 
he'd been shot in the junk, and so he was unable to reproduce, and that's why he never had any descendants. Now, more reputable modern scholarship suggests that this may have been a face-saving lie, because depending on what you read and who you ask, it's likely that Brooke was either gay, a pedophile, or a bisexual man with a quasi-sexual interest in extremely young men. We don't really know. Hmm. We'll talk about this a lot hmm. throughout the episode, and I'll see where you land on mm-hmm. this. Mm. Because one of the reasons why we don't really know if he's gay or a pedophile is a lot of times he's romancing people who are called boys, but who are also legally adults in the society that he's in. Mm. So they're 16, 17, but that's also, they're adults who are like lieutenants in the military. So it, I, I don't know like how mm-hmm. you, it, it's odd. It's very, right. It's very uncomfortable, and there's a lot of very kind of abusive stuff in Brooke's mm-hmm. background with this, but we don't know, I don't know entirely how to characterize the man. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems likely that he was not, in fact, shot in the junk, but that was a kind of a face-saving thing because he was not interested in women. Mm-hmm. As a general rule, that seems accurate to say, not super interested in women, and he needed, you know, you could get punished with execution for being a gay man in these yeah, yeah. days. And it happened. Like, the British, like, put people to death for being homosexual. So, if he was, even if he was just kind of not straight, like even if he might, may have been sort of like more on the asexual side of things, we yeah. don't really know. He had to come up with a reason why he wasn't having kids right, and right. may have been shot in the junk was the reason. It's a good way to get sympathy. Yeah, good way to get sympathy. Good way to have people not ask anymore about yeah, what right. happened. That's, that, that conversation yeah. ends pretty much right there when yeah. you talk to yeah. somebody. Yeah, well, I have a terrible injury and it's rendered me uh, infertile, you know. <laughs> people aren't going <laughs> right. to ask much more. Yeah, right. Got it. <laughs> So we don't exactly know how he was injured, but it was bad. You know, five years of recovery time is a pretty severe, um, pretty severe injury. And obviously medicine back then is mostly like screaming and mercury. But yeah, um, it's a little bit better today. I should also note that information would come over, come forward in the early 1950s to suggest that he had at least one bastard son that he hid away from the public eye. Hmm. Again, we don't really know. It's all very muddled with this dude. We'll talk some more about this later. So Mm -hmm. in any case, whatever the matter of his actual injury is, whatever the case of his sexuality is, Brooks spent nearly five years recuperating. He was better by 1830, but his journey back to India to resume his service with the company was dogged by bad weather and worse luck. He didn't arrive in Madras until 12 days before his deadline to return to service. Now, his dad, being like an influential person within the company, was able to kind of pull some strings to get him more leave time. Um, but Brooke like didn't want to take, basically what happens is he winds up arriving late, realizes he's not going to get to India in time for his deadline. So he applies for a position to serve the company in Madras and that was refused. And this made James Brooke very angry. So he resigned rather than get dismissed from the company. This was his public claim, at least. Now the reality seems to be that his journey back through company controlled Southeast Asia had really like, he'd seen a lot of things that made him angry at the way the company did things. And he no longer wanted to serve them. Um, And I'm going to quote from a write-up by the University of Canberra here. Brooke's subsequent musings in his journal suggest a growing divergence between the company's activities in India and his own emerging ideas about Britain and its role in Asia, which might have motivated him to seek new opportunities. He continued on in Castle Huntley to China, that's the ship that he's traveling on, to China via Penang, Malacca, and Singapore. With him on board were James Templer, whose brother John would become his close friend and supporter, and Arthur Cruikshank, who would also later become one of Brooke's protégés in Borneo. The ideas Brooke began to set down in his journal, Jejun in Payne's view, bemoaned the deterioration of the native character arising from their intercourse with the whites. 
So you see what he's saying? Like, th- this is interesting because of, it, it talks about the kind of racist that Brooke is becoming. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you have different kinds of racists in the British Empire. You have the people, these non-white peoples are inferior to us and we need to rule them. And you have these, these non-white peoples um, are being hurt by us. Uh, uh, and so I need to, like, I need to... Uh, fix them right and then you have right. the idea that like I, I need to like raise up these people who are who are not inferior inherently but ha- have an inferior culture I mean to make their culture better there's a couple of different kinds of racist it's like so close to getting it but then just yeah. takes that left turn when you mm-hmm. should just kept going with that thought yeah and, and and Brooke is I don't know if you'd call this the least offensive kind of the racist that you could be <laughs> in the British Empire service but he he rather than being kind of the standard sort of white supremacist, he's the no- noble savage kind of white right. supremacist, right? right and he, right. he felt that the decadent values of modernity were responsible for ru- ruining the noble natives of India. Yeah. Now, interspersed within this bigotry was a morsel of truth. Truth. Brooke had spent his early career stumbling into a subcontinent that had seen its cultural substrate torn apart in the name of short-term profits. Intervillage crop and water-sharing arrangements built up over centuries to mitigate the shifting tides of climate had been ripped apart by venal corporate administrators who wanted to suck as much money out of the area as quickly as possible. This had reduced many people who'd once been independent farmers to beggars on the street. The introduction of hard liquor had also had a visible negative impact on many of the now urban poor. James Brooke did not entirely blame his fellow English for this state of affairs, um, which is, again, part of his racism. As he reached the Malay Peninsula, he had his first close contact with Chinese people, many of whom ran businesses and carried on trading operations in the region. And he blamed a lot of what he was seeing in India on the Chinese. He wrote, quote, their habits are most filthy, their dress in the most unbecoming, their faces the most ugly, and their figures the most ungraceful of any people under the sun. They appear cut out of a log of wood by the hand of some unskillful savage. Their mouths are wide, their noses snub, and their eyes small and set and crooked in their heads. When they move, they swing arms, legs, and body like a paper clown pulled by a string. And to sum it up, all their color is a dirty yellow. So he is a wow. really racist against Chinese people. So he has this view that like Indian people are noble they're savages. inherently noble and we've corrupted them and they've also been corrupted by these like by the Chinese, right? Um who he is super racist against. Like and this will continue to be a major factor in his life. He is a huge anti-Chinese bigot. Um and as a huge anti-Chinese bigot, uh, James and a group of these guys that I mentioned are on the boat with him. The Crook one who described as his, yeah, yeah, the guys described as his protege. These are his friends. They might also be his lovers. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, but at one point, while they're in Southeast Asia, um, they dress up in yellow face. Uh, yeah. Mm. Oh man. No, Quote, that's, that's rough. Yeah. A jape involved him and shipmates disguising themselves as Chinese at the Feast of Lanterns in order to penetrate the city, declared out of bounds to Europeans. Being once in, the whole party threw off disguise and broke some of the lanterns, which were accounted precious. They barely escaped with their lives, and how escape was possible is the marvel. James would always have... Yeah. <laughs> it just it cracks me up because if they really did that, it cracks me up because it's like they... Did they really believe that they'd fooled anybody? Did they? Did they actually, we're getting away with this. They don't even know. <laughs> they we're don't dressed, even know. We're dressed in local garb. Look at us. We're, <laughs> we're nailing it. We're nailing this. They don't even know. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 bad at this, and they do get caught. Um, so James would later learn to work with Chinese traders in the land that he eventually conquered, but he never got over his bigotry against them, which would eventually lead to horrific bloodshed. But at this point, Brooke had been kind of 
he recognized the evils of the East India Company and some of the evils of colonialism. He knew there was something immoral going on in all of this. Um, but unfortunately, his reaction to this was to invent ways that he might do colonialism but nicer, right? Mm. His solution to this is obviously an an unethical system is yeah. I can do it better <laughs> as opposed to maybe we should get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, he even picked out a spot Penang in Malaysia that he thought was ripe for his kinder sort of colonialism. And I'm going to quote from the University of Canberra again. He toyed with the idea of Penang as the spot on which the experiment should be made for a permanent British colony in which individuals could reap the rewards of their own efforts, unlike under the company's monopoly. Later, his interest grew to include Sumatra. Brooke and his companions soon developed a plan to return to the eastern archipelago for a, to, and seek for adventure. They called it the Schooner Plan, awaiting only the financial means to implement it. So... The I just don't like this is... dude. Like, he's not likable. There's no qualities I've seen that are redeeming. He's just like a fucking piece of shit. Is that yeah, accurate? Yeah, I mean, they all they all kind of are. Like, it's yeah. it's he's he's a he's a young he's a man who was raised to believe that he and people like him ought to rule the world, and he recognizes yeah, the I people actually ruling <laughs> are bad like at it, you and the like solution this? is for me to do it better. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, he's, um, he's 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 he sucks. I don't like. Well, him. yeah, this is behind the bastards. Sophie. Yeah, I know, but, <laughs> you but, might have heard you, of it. <laughs> yeah. Why? Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much. No, but I'm just saying. A lot of times when you're when we do these episodes, it's like you can find like one thing where you're like, oh, okay. This guy. Well, the 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 one redeeming thing. I mean, this is such a small thing, but he does seem to have a genuine affection for India, at least, which is. Very little, and it's yeah. just a slightly more mellow form of racism, but that's, I guess, something yes. for the time. I don't like him saying it now. <laughs> I'm, I'm still on the fence. I'm still on the fence about this guy. I don't, I'm not, I'm going to wait till the end so I make up my mind. I'm so like big. 40 minutes in, not into him. <laughs> yeah, he could still pull out of this tailspin. <laughs> he does not. He does not. So, <laughs> the schooner not. plan, and a, a schooner is a type of boat was very much the dream of an upper-class English schoolboy. Basically, his idea was that, like, he and his best buddies that he'd, like, met and hung out with on this boat and traveled around Southeast Asia with were going to, like, learn how to navigate and sail together, under get a ship and sail to get away under his leadership to have, like, adventures and participate in glorious battles and get rich. It was... His biographer describes it as, quote, an all-boys adventure writ large upon the real world. So, again... <laughs> It's the kind of shit that he 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 reads in these in these fantasy books that are very popular among young English boys of this day. He just wants to do it for real. And because he's a rich kid, he's going to get a chance to. How old is he at this point? He's like 20. 20s, he's, he's in his early 20s. 20s okay. early, early 20s at this yeah. point. So it was always unclear how the schooner plan was going to lead to wealth and influence, uh, for and, and especially how it was going to lead to them creating colonies in Malaysia. Uh, when James returned home to England and broke the news to his doting dad that he'd resigned his commission with the East India Company, he tried to convince the old judge to invest money in this scheme. He assured his father that with a vehicle, quote, e equally capable of fight or flight, he and his friends would be able to make a fortune trading through Southeast Asia and having <laughs> adventures in between deliveries. Now, <laughs> you, this is have you seen Step Brothers? This is the scene where they show the stepdad, the video, boats and hose, boats and hose, and they're, they're trying to build their media company. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, Dad, yeah. check it out. We just need a boat where it's going to be awesome. Boats and hose. That's all he needs. Aww. And that's 
so it's like um it's it's like that's what's happening but he's saying we you need to buy us a warship like we we need we need to get like a battleship so that we can sail around and have adventures and that will be profitable somehow dad trust me so it's more like boats and guns and boys yeah, as opposed right, to boats right, and hose right, right. Now, being a practical man, James's dad told him that his plan was nonsense, warned him that he had no head for business, and that even if he was good at business, working on a trading vessel was one of the most dangerous and miserable jobs that a person could get. But James kept badgering his old man, and as he'd done with the elephant, his dad eventually threw down the money to buy a 290-ton slaver brig. Come on, and It's called dad. a slaver brig because it used to be used for transporting slaves, you know? Um, <laughs> no, we got that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, yeah, so, great. Yeah. Thank you. S- Sophie's liking this guy less and less. Less and less. Dad also not it. He's. This is the era where slavery has been outlawed and the British Empire is fighting a crusade across the world against slavery that allows them to do more colonialism. Like they're conquering land and subjugating people in the name of ending the slave trade. That's a lot of what's happening in this period. So, um. That's why, like, this is in the news right now. Like, but there's been a couple of cases recently where it was um some fucking I think it was, was it might have been Pierce Morgan somebody some British person was like nobody's done more to fight against uh, racism than right. the British Empire. Um, and what they're referring to is all of these different anti-slavery wars and crusades that the British Empire fought. And what they neglect to mention is that they were always used to subjugate people. They were used as justifications to militarily occupy places and and. De- deny people their sovereignty like that was the only reason for these crusades um it was it was i don't know a modern americans can't imagine this but imagine seeing a real problem and your government uses that real problem to justify conquering a people and taking their stuff again very hard it's to weird. very hard to visualize That's, yeah. yeah it's a little foreign yeah yeah so James had only been home a few months when he convinced his dad to buy the boat. And by all accounts, those few months had been much more than enough for him. He wrote to a friend that, quote, I feel the irksomeness of civilized society greater than ever, and its bond shall not hold me long. My own family speak to me of the years we are to pass together, and that it always makes me sad to think that in my innermost heart I have determined to plunge into some adventure that will bestow activity and employment. So he's he comes home and quits the company, and his family's happy to have him back. And they're like, oh, we're all going to get to live together in England. And James kind of feels bad because he has, again, the the kind of the shot of adrenaline that he had participating in that war, his experience traveling around has convinced him, like, I'm not going to stay in England. Like, I'm going to go get into dumb adventures in Southeast Asia. Um, and he knows that. Um, and so in early 1834, James finds himself with a giant boat purchased by his dad, which had a half dozen cannons and a hold for, full of merchandise that he was going to trade in Singapore. He hired a crew and a captain, and he brought along some friends who, again, probably were romantic interests, and he set sail for the Far East. The trip was almost immediately a disaster. James knew, James knew very little about boats or the nautical <laughs> life, but he insisted on being in command over the venture, even though he'd hired a perfectly good captain. That said, his main issue with the captain he hired is something most of us will find sympathetic. Back in the early 1800s, British naval discipline was held up with what I think Winston Churchill later described as rum, sodomy, and the lash. So basically, the reason that like our boats are able to function is that we get our crews drunk at night, they get to fuck each other, and we beat them when they break any rules, mm-hmm. right? Like that, and, and the beatings were were vicious. Like mm-hmm. the kind of whipping sailors would receive from minor infractions of discipline are not unsimilar to the kind of whippings you would hear about slaves getting. Like people would get sentenced to sometimes hundreds of lashes with a leather whip in the back. 
Like people, so, sailors died getting whipped. It was pretty, pretty ugly naval discipline in this period of time. Um, now, this uh, was seen as necessary because obviously when you're on a boat, especially the kind of boats they had back then, fucking up can get hundreds of people killed, right? Sure. Like, which is not to say that it's cool to whip people for a problem like that, but that's why they saw it as necessary. If you don't have strict naval discipline, you're going to get everyone on the boat killed. James was not comfortable with cruelty. He preferred kindness, and he felt that sailors could be kept in line just as well by a loving attitude. He later wrote on the subject of discipline, quote, It was necessary to form men to my purpose, and by a line of steady and kind conduct, to raise up a personal regard for myself and an attachment for the vessel. Now, we don't really know if this worked uh, on board his first voyage, but it definitely pissed off the captain and made for a tremendously unpleasant trip. Now, to make matters worse, James was as horrible as trade as his father had expected. He eventually sold their cargo for a massive loss in Macau and sailed back to England a failure. But he was still a rich failure because his parents were rich, and his parents also had no desire to chastise him for his fuck-ups. Soon after he landed back at home, his dad died and left all of his surviving children a considerable inheritance. James received some 30,000 pounds sterling, which is the equivalent of about four or five million dollars today. So now he's independently wealthy. His first voyage has been a massive failure, but his dad dies and he's rich. He doesn't have to ask his family for anything else. So as soon as he gets back, he sells his old boat and he buys a new one. And this one is a yacht. Uh, And when I say yacht here, I'm not talking about like just a rich guy boat. A yacht in this period of time is a military vessel. This was actually one of the old royal yachts that he buys. Um, And it has a full complement of cannons. It's got something like a dozen big guns. And because of how British naval law was at the time, it legally counted as a military vessel. This gave James the right to fly a special naval flag and to wear a special naval uniform and to receive salutes from British naval vessels. While English sailors would know that this was not really a ship of the Royal Navy anymore, these perks meant that as far as any foreigners knew, James was captaining a British Royal Navy vessel and representing the British government. And he will never go out of his way to disabuse them of this notion, right? That's going to be important for what comes later. So the, the British are just okay with this because it's like this is a super rich guy and this is how we treat our rich people. They can do whatever they want. Is that is that what's happening? Again, a lot of the British kind of military apparatus at this point is corporate. So they're not against the idea of people of private entities representing the empire with military vessels. He buys a naval vessel that is still part of the Navy. And because because mm. of what this vessel is, he retains the right to represent himself as kind of like um, almost like a, a, a naval national guard sort of thing. Gotcha. Right. And I think that is part of the idea. If there's an emergency, all of these guys right, who own right. these different votes, we can call on them to serve. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of the situation. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's got to get it's got to get fun. So. With his yacht, which was called the Royalist, uh, loaded with firepower and, of course, a bunch of new friends, some of whom were probably lovers, James Brooks sets off on a new adventure. And again, the goal was Malaysia, this time a place called Sarawak, ruled over by the Sultan of Brunei. They left port on July 27, 1839. Upon arrival, their first task was to carry out a series of gun salutes, which means firing cannons wildly into the air. This was how Brooke decided he was going to signal his peaceful intentions to the locals. <laughs> now, <laughs> I see this going wrong. As you might expect, there's a couple of, I mean, uh, uh, cannon salutes are common things at this time. 
so it's not necessarily an aggressive act, but it's also not for nothing that he does this because it lets everyone in Sarawak know, oh, this guy's got a bunch of giant cannons, right? Like mm-hmm. that it's 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 it, it makes it clear that if you fuck with this guy, he's mm-hmm. got he's got some shit. Um so, you know, James fires his cannons and then he sends a boat ashore to meet the local ruler, uh, Raja Muda Hashim. Now, this guy, Hashim, is basically the local governor under the command of the Sultan of Brunei. Um, he's one of the Sultan's uncles, I think. So he and Hashim smoke tobacco from footlong cigarettes and they drink tea. They listen to a band and they do all of the polite stuff you'd expect from a royal welcome. Hashim and his people assumed Brooke was there representing the British Empire since he was dressed and his ship bore the flag of the Royal Navy. James Brooke told the Raja that he was just a private person, but he also presented the ruler with official documents that he claimed were from British authorities. As a result, everyone there assumed he was, in fact, an agent of the British government. He told them his plan in the country was just to survey the coasts and collect specimens of the local fauna, but no one believed this either. When they got to talking, the Raja told Brooke that he was in an air in the area to put down a rebellion by the local Malays, who were laying siege to the local capital and were purported to be allied with a nearby unfriendly sultan. Raja, the Raja's forces were not well-armed or well-trained or particularly numerous, and neither were the rebels. In practice, this meant that this war was mostly just a bunch of inconclusive street fights, with neither side able to really bring things to a close. The Raja initially tried to downplay the rebellion, framing it as more of a mild squabble between children. James offered to help him anyway, and this sort of led the Raja to believe that he was doing this on behalf of the British Empire. Nigel Barley writes, quote, they, being the uh, the authorities in Brunei, had no idea they were entering into a political alliance, not with a government, but with a spoiled young man from Bath <laughs> squandering his inheritance. <laughs> so within hours, this spoiled young rich kid with a yacht had turned himself to the ostensible commander of a foreign military in their efforts to crush an insurgent rebellion. If he understood the gravity of the situation, James did not show it. When he landed on Sarawak's shore, he convinced himself that he was the first white man to set foot there, and so he went barefoot through the jungle. This proved to be a bad idea, and his feet got horribly infected, which rendered him unable to walk under his own power, and he would have to be carried around for the next several days. Why is he so stupid? (laughs) He's doing so great in life, though. He's so dumb. He's nailing it. He just blitzes Failing upward. Yeah, fails upward at every turn. He has failed upward into commanding the royal effort to fight an insurgency in Malaysia. I mean, just like the like scam of it all, and then like he does all these unnecessary things. I don't, I don't like. Yeah, him. I mean, he's just having a good time. He's just yeah, having yeah. a good time. Sowing his oats. The injury did not dim Brooks' instant enthusiasm for the wilds of Sarawak. He took his boat sailing to the interior, where it was immediately attacked by pirates made up of, a knuckle, of another local people, the Dayaks. Uh, these Dayak pirates killed several Malays before being driven off. And James considered this all to have been very exciting. When it was explained that the Dayaks had a penchant for taking and preserving heads, he was even more excited. With very little knowledge of either group, Brooks started stereotyping them. And I'm going to quote from the book White Raja again. His infatuation with adolescence was being fully extended to the, to include the whole supposedly childlike peoples. They were all becoming midshipmen under his especial care, and already he was leaping to judgment, forming the stereotypes that would anchor Brook rule. The Malays were natural gentlemen, but, when bad, could be sinuous and duplicitous, and they were lazy. The Dayaks were naturally honest, chaste, passionate, and faithful, people of the land, not the town. It was like the difference between cats and dogs. Repeatedly, the Dayaks are explicitly compared to hunting dogs, with a bad master. The master may be changed for a good one, but the dogs will take time to learn to not, not to snap and bite. Ooh. But they were a good breed, and they would eventually be won by kindness. 
Oh. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. Real. And again, this all, he starts coming up with these ideas about people because he convinces this local ruler that he's a great military mind. And the ruler sends him to the interior and he gets a bunch of people killed like, in an ambush. Oh, he's just the worst. <laughs> these guys murdering all of my, these guys murdering all of the men I were sent out with. He's they're like, like good dogs with bad rulers. He's like, as long as Crookshanks is okay, I don't yeah. care. <laughs> yeah, that, that it really is the attitude. No one white has died yet. So. No one has died yet in his mind. Yeah, right. You know who won't get a bunch of a bunch of Malaysian volunteer soldiers murdered in an ambush and then write racist propaganda about them? Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... 
Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. We are back. So with his adventure done and only some of the men the Raja had lent him dead, Brooke considered his visit to Sarawak a success, which had again included him going into the jungle briefly and getting a bunch of people killed. He promised to return in a few months and then sailed off to fuck around in other parts of Southeast Asia. This wound up not being as fun as he expected, so he headed to Singapore after a few weeks, where stories of his pirate fighting exploits had spread. Now, local merchants who'd long had to deal with Dayak pirates praised him for bringing the might of the British Empire against those dastardly bandits. Being recognized by a couple of dudes absolutely ignited James's ego, and he went home to his and he wrote home to his mother, quote, I really am becoming a great man, dearest mother. The world talks about me. The rulers of England may th- threaten to write me. Newspapers call me patriotic and adventurous. The Geographical Society pays me compliments. Am I not a great man? No, bitch. You are not a great man. I know again, the mother again, of it all. His adventures include getting some guys killed in the jungle and then briefly firing a bunch of cannons at pirates in canoes. Like, that that's then, what he's done so far. And completely fucking up his feet. Mm-hmm. And Mom, completely fucking up his awesome. feet. This is amazing. Am I not a great man, mummy? Mother. Mother. <laughs> Am I great yet, mama? <laughs> so the British governor of Singapore did not think that uh, that James Brooke was a great man. In fact, he yelled at James for inserting himself into politics with a sovereign nation. He's basically like, you're just a guy with a boat. How dare you in, like, <laughs> stick yourself in the middle of a civil war? Like, what is wrong with you? So there is at least a single rational person in this story so far. <laughs> Brooke was so offended by this that he left Singapore straight away and sailed for Sarawak, where he could hang out more with his new friends, only some of whom he'd gotten killed the first time. <laughs> Now, the Raja was happy to have him back, or more accurately, was happy to have his cannons back. And James was introduced to the Raja's younger brother, Pince Badruddin, who was hot as fuck. Let me, like, this this dude, smoking. You have to assume smoking, because of the very thirsty letter that James writes back to his mom. Oh, oh interesting. <laughs> Quote, I wish you could know the Panjaran Badruddin, who with the amiable and easy temper of his bud- brother Muda Hashim, combines decision and abilities quite astonishing in a native prince, and a directness of purpose seldom found in an Asiatic. As a companion, I found him superior to most of them, to most about me, and there is something particularly interesting in sounding the depths and shallows of an intelligent native mind, and examining them freed from the trammels of court etiquette. <laughs> Wow. It's amazing how even the dumb people back then could write well. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is, right? Like, <laughs> like he's so dumb, but he can actually he actually put together words in a way that yeah. actually sounded okay. Yeah. 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 That's that's the values of a classical education I get. But he's, I mean, that's an incredibly horny letter. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. He's thirsty. Yeah. That's what the kids say. I so, know. Badruddin was very young, and at this point, James had both the wealth and worldliness to seem very impressive to an inexperienced young prince. He adopted James as a mentor and started drinking wine and copying the way the Englishman dressed. James rewarded this behavior with lavish attention and constant praise. When it came time for James to go help the Raja with his war, there was no question that Badruddin would stay behind. 
the Raja had phrased the rebellion as less of a war and again more of a petty squabble between children. This was not quite accurate, but it certainly was not war as James had known it in Burma. In Sarawak, both sides sides tended to fight by building fortifications and engaging in short skirmishes in which people rarely died and then ran back to build more fortifications. There was not much willingness to charge headlong into decisive battle. And this frustrated Brooke, who again only knew how to charge headlong into the enemy. He wrote, (laughs) quote, We found the Grand Army in a state of torpor, eating, drinking, and walking up to the forts back and again daily. But having built these imposing structures and their appearance not driving the enemy away, they were at a loss of what to do next. James took it upon himself to break the stalemate the only way he knew how. From the book White Raja, quote, The solution was, as always, that they should charge, even if this had to be on foot rather than on horseback, as in India, and it was Badruddin's overawing presence that would make them. But the Malays wrong-footed James turned things around and refused to attack, urging that they dared not risk Badruddin's precious royal life. Badruddin insisted that if I went, he would likewise go, and the Malays insisted that if he went, they would not go. So Badruddin and James retired and directed the artillery from a place of safety. All went well until the surreptitiously advancing assault troops betrayed themselves by making the mistake of praying too loudly, attracting the attention of three old muskets in the hands of the defenders, at which they prayed still more loudly and swiftly retired. At the front, everyone built more forts, and James looked for more things to charge. So, <laughs> This is... I, I realize now why, why, why he likes boats, because that's mm-hmm. like the one place his soldiers can't run from him. You know, yeah. they're on a boat. They can't leave him, because it sounds like they, everyone must think he's... An, yeah. His soldiers must think he's an idiot. Yeah, they they think he's 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 endangering their lives because again, the only tactic he has is run headlong at the yeah. enemy's guns. Um, he's very Zap Brannigan energy here. <laughs> 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 uh, so eventually, the fighting came down to James taking the field with his fe- fellow Europeans, all combat veterans, and charging the enemy. Yeah, this time he wears shoes, and they do charge the enemy, who breaks and runs. Um, and after this, James decided continued battle would be tedious. He dis- he called a parley, and he told the rebels that if they quit, he would guarantee them their lives, and he'd stop the soldiers he was with from looting their villages. James had no authority to promise any of this, and in fact, one of the other local rulers, a prince named Makota, had already promised his men that they were about to get to loot all of these enemy villages. But James declared the formal rebels under his personal protection, and insinuated that taking vengeance on them would be crossing the British Empire. And so as a result, this little war ends peacefully, with a number, but with a tremendous amount of anger on Prince Makota's part. The Raja, however, was overjoyed to have things over finally. He declared James a permanent resident of Sarawak and gave him the right to trade within the country. James briefly tried to set up a living as a merchant, bringing goods from Singapore to the isolated kingdom, but he proved to be as bad as trading as he had, uh, you know, as he'd always been. He's never any good at business or making money. So in short order, he decided to go back to the only thing he'd ever really wanted to do, having adventures while pretending to represent the Royal Navy. When he'd left Sarawak, the Raja had promised to build him a house as a sign of gratitude. Hashim had also promised to have a large shipment of antimony ore, which was mined in the area, uh, for him, like ready for him to go trade in Singapore. Um, now, when he landed, though, he found out that none of this had been done. There'd been no ore gathered, there'd been no house built, and he was really angry. He was even more furious when he learned that, in accordance with ancient custom, the rulers in Brunei, which included the Raja's nephew, the Sultan, were about to allow a hundred Dayak war canoes to row down the river and raid Malay villages on the interior. This was, in fact, brutal, but it was a crucial source of revenue for the Bruneians who ruled Sarawak. Um, So basically... 
you've got the Sultan of Brunei who runs this country. And whenever you have kind of like a small group of people running an entire country, they're going to do the same shit the British Empire always did, which is play different ethnic groups off of each other. And the way the Bruneians do this is they have an agreement with the Dayaks where they'll let them go and raid and murder and like take slaves and, and steal from villages in exchange for the Dayaks paying bribes to the rulers in mm. Brunei. And this is part of how the government perpetuates itself, right? This is kind of what they have instead of taxes on the Dayaks, is they let them raid and they get mm-hmm. some of the money that they get from raiding. And it's also how they stop the Dayaks from rebelling and fighting against them. Right. The the safe the regular raiding season was seen as kind of like a safety valve for Dayak aggression. And this all made James furious. Like he, again, he comes into this system that has been set up for a while and as brutal as it is, is the system that things work by in Sarawak. And he thinks it's immoral, so he demands the whole thing be cancelled. So he was ignored in this. The Raja was like, this is how we do things here. You're just some like white dude who came in. I'm not going to I'm not going to change our entire system of government for you. Um, and when this happens, James Brooke gets angry and he sails his warship inland and he basically trains his cannons on the capital and threatens the Raja into action. Hmm. So the Raja is like, well, I don't have any cannons. You have a warship. So I guess I'm going to call off the raid. But after his little stunt, James could tell the local leadership was no longer amenable to his presence. So he had been like the Raja had been happy to make him a permanent resident and give him like some official status here. After he threatens the Raja with cannons, this is kind of no longer the case, as you might expect. So James decides that since things have become unfriendly, he's going to make some more threats, pointing out that he has the power to bring the British Navy down on Brunei, which is the capital of the entire region. Now, at just this point, purely by coincidence, a company steamship entered the port to trade. This served, and again, because James is in a Navy vessel, when the company steamship goes in, they have to salute him. So they do this whole salute, and it makes it look to the people on the ground like this boat is coming in to support him. And it makes it seem more credible, like, oh, shit, he really can bring the entire Royal Navy down right, on our asses right, right. if well, he wants to. Well, that's fortuitous that this happened at yeah. that exact moment. <laughs> this happens like four times to him. <laughs> He's the luckiest <laughs> dumb guy. Yeah. So this obviously serves to make James's boasts more credible. And knowing a moment when he sees one, James sails to Brunei and marches on the on the Sultan's palace with a company of heavily armed men. So basically, after scaring the local rulers in Sarawak, he sails to the capital of Brunei and comes ashore with like a 100 dudes strapped with rifles. So he comes to the Sultan with a bunch of armed mercenaries and a list of grievances, blaming blaming Prince Makota for trying to kill him and trying to capture English soldiers. This was mostly nonsense, but it gave James a justification for what what he was about to do next. Makota, James said, was a destabilizing influence in the area. The Raja was not safe with Prince Makota around. And in order to make things safe for the Sultan in Brunei, the Sultan needed to make James Brooke the governor of Sarawak for life. Otherwise, James couldn't guarantee the Raja or the Sultan's safety. Mm-hmm. So, and again, he's saying that, like, I'm here, I want to, you need to do this so I can protect you from Prince Makota. But he's doing this while pointing a bunch of cannons at the Sultan and with a company of armed mercenaries at his back. So, this is actually pretty smart of him. This is like one of the smarter things he's done. Yeah, he, he figures out how to be how to be a white guy in this period. (laughs) So again, and the Sultan at this point is not just staring at a bunch of guns. He's staring at a bunch of guns held and controlled by a guy who, as far as he knows, speaks with the authority of the queen of England. So the, the Sultan submits James Brooke was made the governor of Sarawak. And in his mind, he, James kind of believed that he was doing all this for selfless purposes, or at least that's how he portrayed it to other people. I don't know if I'd say he believed it, but that's Hmm. how he, 
he kind of writes home about this. Uh, Nigel Barley, his biographer, writes, quote, James always considered his actions to be genuinely for the benefit of locals, whether the locals realized it or not, so that his interests and theirs would naturally coalesce. It was a fundamental tenet of his rule that the Brooks governed only by consensus, Bruneians by unprincipled Oriental despotism. But this was hardly the free entreaty or election by grateful natives that Brook history would record. So he would kind of, he becomes the governor of Sarawak through threatening a guy with guns. But... He justifies this by saying the Bruneians are are dictators, right? They're and they're they're ruling by terror and fear and violence, which is true. But he also is kind of ignoring the fact that he became the ruler by threatening to gun down the the existing right. rulers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty slick, though. I'll, I'll give him credit for that. It is slick. It I is will slick, not. and it it'll get slicker because <laughs> he's not he's not what he he wants to be at this point he has been made the governor of a region of malaysia for the rest of his life and he's been made it through like a handshake agreement he doesn't have any paper that like signifies this he doesn't have his descendants don't have any right to the position so his next tasks are going to be finding out how to turn himself from like governor of this island to basically king so that's the journey we're going to cover when we go to part two of the james brooks story but for right now, it's time for part two of the Kava story, where you plug your pluggables. Yeah. Oh, that was really good. Again. Thank you. I am a professional. Professional broadcasting. I'm learning a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You can find us at The House of Pod on Twitter, and you can listen to our podcast pretty much in all the same places you listen to your other podcast. It's called The House of Pod. It's a medical podcast, but... You know, I think you might enjoy it if you're not a doctor. People seem to do that. Uh, it's kind of relatable. And if you want to hear how doctors actually talk when they're like, you know, talking to each other uh, and not in front of like, you know, like a lecture hall or something like that, this is uh, the show for you. You like it. Try it. If you don't, you know, it's free. That was a great pitch. I like that. Check out the House of Pod. Uh, and I don't know. Check out buying a naval vessel and conquering a chunk of Malaysia. Um, give it a shot. You know, it might work out for you. Always worth, that probably isn't a good way to end this episode. I can almost anyway. hear the music in the background. Mm-hmm. Yep, here we go. Let's let let, let, let the music uh, distract from the fact that I just in, endorsed imperialism. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit tomboyx.com. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.